Buenos dias, Twitter. Soy Zach Stafford. Stop. It's not the debate. That's right. I'm sorry. Hi, Twitter. It's Thursday, and you are watching aim to dm and we have a great show for you. We are going to be talking about the debates. Also, Alanis Morissette, and I'm sitting down with Heidi Schreck, who is behind the play, What the Constitution Means to Me. It's pretty amazing. It's incredible. So stay right there, and we will see you on the timeline. And I will try my best not to reenact last night's siblings. You will not reenact. Or will I? You will not. I can't let that happen. It's not going to happen. No. My best Cory Booker. No. Good morning, Twitter. I'm Alex Berg. He's Zach Stafford, and you are watching AM to DM. Hola, Twitter. So I'm kidding. I won't do it. On this set, <laughs> we do not pander. Oh, come on. It's so much fun. Well, look <laughs> until it ruins your political career. There you go. There you go. Oh, but how are you doing before you jump into the show? You know, I'm good. Um, I thought that maybe I would try to go to bed early last night. Um, of course, like despite my best efforts, was riveted by the debate, so that didn't happen for me. Yeah, yeah, you stayed up late too. Yes, I did. I was covering it for the advocate. Uh, or helping with the coverage. We had reporters there, just like BuzzFeed had reporters there. Everyone was yeah, there. Yeah. So it was a big old party for us to all laugh at. But the real laughter, I think, was on Twitter. I mean... Twitter was where it's at. So we yes. have a tweet to kind of outline that for from our friend Hayes Brown. He writes, I am proud to announce the winner of this debate, your tweets. Yes, you. Good job. They were very funny. Everyone laughed. Yeah, I have to say, uh, Twitter was in one of its like purest, finest Editing. moments. This is the Twitter I love when we can just like collectively enjoy these memes. Yes. So yeah, Sadie Doyle tweeted, Lol, Corey was giving him the look because he had also planned a gratuitous <laughs> Spanish portion. <laughs> I mean, Corey is not happy. It. He was like, ma'am, that was my shit. <laughs> and here's this tweet from Jamel Hill. Mayor Pete is going to learn Dothraki overnight. And I believe that. Yeah. He would. He would. People remarked this big night for Duolingo. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and even this truth from Kate Aronoff, there's a 40% chance that Lincoln Chafee is on stage right now and we just haven't noticed. You know, the producers are really playing with us by not chironing all of the, like, white men who we just didn't know. I was like, there are so many white men here and yeah, I didn't know like, who they are. Besides Jay Inslee, he's tall and as our, our dear producer Mary pointed out, a snap. We got to interview him. Surprise. Yeah. Well, let's take like, this to the timeline. <laughs> what was the funniest or most cringeworthy moment of the debates for you? Tweet us using the hashtag AMDM. Well, uh, you know, I'm excited to continue talking about the debates, add a little bit of a political analysis into it. So let's go live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod. Good morning to you. Good morning. Happy day after debate and day of debate day. Oh gosh, thank you for reminding us that we still have a couple of more hours to endure. So much. Um, I gotta ask you, did any of the memes from last night crack you up? <laughs> yeah, they were great. I, I will say one, I got to <clears throat> live in real life because I was, I was sort of out in the wild here in DC watching the debates at a, a pretty packed bar full of people who are watching it very closely. Uh, but the moment of the Cory Booker side eye <laughs> during the Spanish, uh, the bar actually erupted in laughter. So that was just <laughs> wonderful to behold. It was iconic, iconic, yeah. iconic. <laughs> yeah. Paul, right off the top, give us your overall, overall impression of last night's debate. Oh, God. Uh, I mean, that is the mood. Where to begin? That is the mood. <laughs> yeah. Bill de Blasio surprised me? I don't, know. Yeah. I don't know what to say. I mean, it's, it's really tough when you have 10 people and you have... <clears throat> Just like these these long string uh, topics that are all, of course, individually very important, but then you can't really get into them in any depth. 
I mean, you know, it was it was an interesting uh, setup because uh, Elizabeth Warren, in terms of all of the polling, was clearly the front runner, and it was a lot of the other people who are on this uh, uh, docket, as opposed to the one that's coming up tonight, were sort of lower on the polling, and you kind of it kind of had that that feel that like you know Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren was sort of the heavyweight, and everyone else was kind of trying to make a name for themselves and and burst through, which I thought people you know did to varying degrees. I think at this stage, I mean, you can't really have detailed policy debates. It's all about putting yourself out there, trying to have people get a feel for you, which again, you know, I, I, I thought <laughs> it's certainly mixed degree of success there. Yeah, I saw a lot of people also praising uh, Castro's performance. Um, was there anybody who uh, yeah. did do well in getting noticed, you know, despite the number of people who were on the stage? I mean, you have to say Bill de Blasio, right? I mean, he, he was just like doing this sort of Kool-Aid man bursting through on various oh different gosh, topics and just, like inserting himself. Yeah, in a way that, that like, I mean, it was striking. It was, uh, he, he, as someone who was not, I mean, I know he's, he's obviously a very high profile politician in particular for you guys there in New York. But I mean, you know, for a lot of us who are not New Yorkers, I think he was just kind of one of the field. And he really, he really did stand up. Castro as well, that's a good one. I mean, I think a lot of people who uh, don't pay a lot of attention attention to you know DC stuff probably would not have known him as well I think he really stood out um, Tulsi Gabbard actually I, I mean you know <laughs> she she did her Tulsi Gabbard thing in a way that was also you know very distinct and is gonna uh, win some people over and then there were other people Ryan I thought didn't really do too well I mean other people didn't really separate themselves from the pack so beyond the personalities what topics really stood out for folks last night yeah, I mean, I, you know, personally, my kind of favorite one, which I know was probably not the most exciting one for most people, was what are you going to do about Mitch McConnell in the Senate? Because that is really the core question of, uh, you know, you can all say whatever you want, but how? what do you do when you come up against Senate Republicans who are going to stop you from doing it? Which I thought, you know, I thought was an interesting topic. I mean, there was some discussion about getting rid of the legislative filibuster, which again, kind of wonky, but will ultimately be the things that decide the course of the country. Uh, but number one, for me personally, was the healthcare part. I mean, I mean you know, what I'm looking for in debates like this is to see different policy options. And, you know, as much as gun control is obviously a very important thing, Democrats largely agree on it, right? There's not a lot of distance between the different policies, whereas healthcare, we saw some real disagreement there. I mean, uh, notably de Blasio and Elizabeth Warren were the only two that put up their hands when we talked about abolishing the private insurance industry. And then we had a lot of people really attack that. Um, uh, people like Amy Klobuchar, I, you know, just saying like this is going to be a bad policy to just get rid of people's uh, private health insurance. This is, this is the attacks that uh, will come against the Democratic candidate if someone like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders is nominated. And it was, it was just sort of fascinating to watch that play out in uh, an intra-democratic uh, square like last night. Mm. Well, uh, you mentioned some of the policies like healthcare uh, that we saw them talk about last night. And uh, one big thing that I feel like people have been talking about is uh, how much Trump is a centerpiece uh, of these uh, campaigns so far. Um, so what did you make of just the mention of him and uh, how that played out on the stage? You know, I, I got to say, I thought there would be more. I mean, it was, it's, it's really a delicate balance, right? Because you, you want to stand out 
uh, and you kind of want to like hit down some of your rivals. And we saw a, a little bit of that. I mean, poor Beto was uh, frequently on the receiving end of people jumping in, uh, both Castro and Blasio notably, uh, jumping in to call him inexperienced and basically trying to say he, he's, he's out of his depth. Um, uh, weirdly, it was almost like he was the front runner. You know, he, he took more heat than anyone else I found. Um, but, you know, so you, you want to measure that with also uh, denouncing Trump. But again, you know, every Democrat is going to do. So how do you stand out uh, when you're doing that? But yeah, no, I mean, certainly a lot of a lot of criticism of Trump. I, uh, I, I like um, I was Klobuchar's line of uh, we're always just like sort of one tweet away from an international incident or from war uh, was pretty effective. Um, but I, I honestly, I thought there would be more. And I think as the field condenses a bit and we have fewer and fewer candidates, uh, we'll, we'll see people more uh, trying out their, their sort of stump speeches when you're know, sort of dry running it for a one-on-one -on -one race with him. Paul, you mentioned until we have fewer candidates in the field, which may take some time. So for now, does this format of having about 10 people on stage every night actually work for viewers? <laughs> no, it's terrible. I mean, there's nothing that can be done about it. Everyone, you can't just exclude people. And actually, some people are being excluded. Even with two days of 10 candidates each, there are people who are being excluded. But, you know, you, ha you have to do it. But, God, it's just... It's, it's, it's a difficult way for people to uh, make a decision as, as seeing so many options. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's like an all-you-can-eat like, sort of buffet menu where it's like three pages of, of items. I mean, it's harder to, harder to focus the mind there. And I do think we're going to get some more meaningful discussions as this goes on when we get down to, I don't know, like a half dozen or so candidates. It's just really tough to have any kind of meaningful debate when you've got to go like, okay, 30 seconds to you, 30 seconds to you, you get maybe a minute just because we haven't talked to you in half an hour. It's just, it's not great. But again, I don't know. It's not, nothing can really be done about it. Well, don't worry, everybody. We still have two more hours of it and uh, 16 more months to go. 16. So buckle up, friends. Oh, um, but Paul, before you go, there will be some big decisions coming out of the Supreme Court today. What are the cases we should look out for? Yeah, so two uh, significant ones. Uh, one is about whether or not the Trump administration can uh, include a a citizenship question on the 2020 census. This is essentially a question of, are you a legal citizen? Um, I mean, we, we basically know from the reporting that comes that has come out that the genesis of this question is to try to depress the response rate of uh, non-citizens, which has all kinds of benefits, in particular for the Republican Party. And um, then there's a second one, which is about gerrymandering, which is, you know, I mean, a, a fundamental question of whether or not there will be fairness in uh, how we draw our district lines. I mean, I know, I know people know what gerrymandering is, but essentially the Supreme Court is, is uh, analyzing whether or not parties can uh, rig maps, whether or not that is allowed under the constitutional. So obviously these are, that's a, just an unbelievably important case. And actually I should mention uh, breaking. We just got this tweet from Ari Berman who says, oh. Breaking, SCOTUS just ruled that extreme partisan gerrymandering is beyond reach of federal courts. 5-4 decision by Roberts, and this is a very, this is very bad for democracy. So, that's where we are. Wow, Roberts flipped on that. Wow, that, okay, so that, I'm, 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 wow, okay, so this is, 
I thought the census question was basically going to be, I mean, we know we have a conservative majority in the Supreme Court. I thought the census question was a slam dunk. They were going to let Republicans put it in. I, I really was thinking they would go the other way on the gerrymandering case. I, so Roberts did not side with the liberals. Yep. That is, I mean, I, I need I need to see the, uh, it, it depends on the scope of the ruling, obviously, but wow, that is that is uh, incredible. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's, that's huge. Yes, it is quite huge. So, Paul, we'll let you run off to yeah. do some reporting <laughs> now. Uh, I'm yeah, thanks. All to That's some stuff to do. Yeah, so thank yeah. you for joining us and yeah. good luck out there. Okay, thanks, guys. Good talking to you. You. We have a great show for you today. Later, we'll be speaking with Nicole Cliff about Alanis Morissette. But up next, it's Fire Tweets with Aladdin star Michael James Scott. Stay tuned. Ooh. It's time for Fire Tweets, and today I'm joined by Broadway actor Michael James Scott, who you might know as Genie from Disney's Aladdin the Musical. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you for being here, and you have a Mickey Mouse shirt on. Well, you know, I just thought I'd give a little mouse Brand- boss. <laughs> he said, I'm trying to keep this job. I'm trying to keep this job. Oh my God, well, thank you for trying to keep that job and helping me do my job today. Yes, You're sir. You're going to help me with Fire Tweets. I are you familiar it. with the game? Yes, I'm very excited. Perfect. So we hit the button, and then we joke about it. Yes. Wonderful. So I'm going to get us started. Okay. And then you'll go from there. All right. So, Joel, you tweet it. The wonderful thing about New York City is that for cars, tons of laws. Beautiful, gorgeous laws they all must follow. But for me, on foot, not a single law. I'm bound by nothing but my own carnal desires. I will fearlessly cross four lanes of traffic to get to just a salad. <laughs> I have risked it all for a salad many times. And you know, I'm new to New York. Okay. And so I'm learning that you all, you girls don't play games here? Not with the traffic. Oil. What is a dangerous moment you found yourself trying to cross the street? Child, when I'm running to like, you know, Hills Country, Hill Country Chicken or something like that. <laughs> I'm literally like, I'm like, get out of my way because I'm running. I'm like, no, Knocking no, just salad. No, for me, it's I'm running to the chicken. And if you are in the way, I'm a bull. I'm like running you over. So fair, let's fair. go. We have to do this. It's important <laughs> to get to your chicken, America. Yes, and boo. Time. Get to your chicken. <laughs> All right. Well, now it's your turn to do the little button. Oh, 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 okay. One, two, three. You're reading here. Will Swinton, I know him. <laughs> hey, Twitter, I've been ignoring you a bit lately. It's not me, it's you. Just need a few less trips down the despair rabbit hole. But I still love the doggy pics and the occasional witty thread that makes me laugh. Okay, just wanted to give that out there. Much love. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever take breaks from social media? You know what? I, I, I have, and I think it's kind of important to do that because, it, as we all know, it can be a lot and I Will is a friend of mine and I he does like he needs he has his little breaks which is which it is important so I actually took I saw this tweet and I was like maybe I should do that wow it like touched you it did like, I, I said this. oh lord maybe <laughs> take a look we're gonna leave here and delete Twitter after this don't do it now we're gonna I'm keep not you here we're gonna keep you here all right period you tweet it bitch what the fuck is philanthropy just just distribute your wealth before we kill you <laughs> Happy Pride! <laughs> Could you 
imagine that's if it was amazing. a man real life. <laughs> Are there any organizations that you're currently supporting or that you love to see out in the world? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, I'm definitely, I support, I mean, many. I mean, there's so many pride ones that for me are, are really, really important. But I also love God, um, God's Love We Deliver. It's such a great organization that is so connected to um, so many, so many different things. And also Covenant House uh, for yes. NYC, mm-hmm. the homelessness for, for young kids. That has been amazing. I, I just did a benefit for them. And they are an incredible organization that I am, I am very, very, Helping like, kids. yes. It's, it's so important. It's very important. Oh God, well, thank you for that work. Yes. And now we got one last job. We're going to hit the button together. You ready? Ready. We're gonna do it. Okay. Three, two, two one. Okay. It's your turn. Okay, so the tweet of the day comes from Jeans of Production. Um, my manager just told me when she was a kid in Australia, there was a monitor lizard that walked up and down the street at 3.30 p.m. and everyone had to give it a boiled egg or it would tap angrily on the window with its foot. Absolutely not. <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, uh, hey, girl, it's lunch. Boo. <laughs> I need some food. <laughs> I, but you know what? In Australia, this is. Because you toured there. I've been in Australia. So how relevant is this? And I, I listen. I was looking to my left and right all the time, <laughs> making sure there was nothing that was big as me. I mean, I kid you not, some of the yeah. kangaroos were as big as me, and they oh, no. they were literally like. Did you want to get the pouch? I, I, I'm not getting no pouch. <laughs> <laughs> So, you've been playing the genie for a bit now. You're yes. traveling around the world. Yeah. What's it like to come back to New York and be on Broadway? Oh my God, incredible. It, to be, I mean, New York, is. there's no other place. It's New York City, it is it, it's the place. I'm obsessed, um, I'm a New Yorker. So to be able to come back and play this role of this sort of iconic thing that is the genie has been a dream. Mm-hmm. It really has been a dream come true and I am beyond blessed to be able to get to do yes, it. Yes, and it's a dream for so many people to see you play. It's yeah. Like, we're keeping that going. Oh, thank you. So the new film that just came out about Aladdin, the yes. live action. Yes. Did you see it and what'd you think of Aladdin? No, Aladdin, God, Will Smith playing you. <laughs> well, Will Smith does a great me. Um, <laughs> it's, it, I was so, I was so impressed. I mean, the, the production value, the, like, the, the epicness of it all was just incredible. And, you know, Will Smith did his thing, did you know? Did he great you? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Listen, <laughs> he did a great Michael James guy, and I was like, it was get it, Will yes. Smith. He showed up for the job. <laughs> so this is the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. Oh, my gosh. What? How significant is this year for you? It is a, it's very significant to be, to be playing this role at this time, to be an out gay black man mm-hmm. supported by a huge company like Disney yeah. uh, Theatricals, it has been truly mind blowing for me. I never what could have dreamt of this as a little kid. Yeah. So to be able to get to stand in my truth mm-hmm. and it be okay and sort of to know what pride is standing for, standing on the shoulders of all those men and women who before me have marched and rioted and gotten mm-hmm. killed and all of those things for me to be standing here with you, you know, on AMD, like it's just it's unbelievable. Major. It's sure. major and I am I'm so I'm so moved by it. I really am. It's an incredible year. It's really cool to be a part of the community and just sort of make it prideful. I love that. And as a fellow black gay man, I'm so glad we're part of this. Yes! Together. Look at us! Look at Come us. on, black! On TV. Look at this! <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. It was such a pleasure. Thank, thank you for having me. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. The tickets are on sale now for Disney's Aladdin.
Aladdin on Broadway. So grab one for you and one for a friend. More Aim to DM is up next. Roxanne Gay tweeted, This profile of Alanis Morissette offers a great many delights, including four boundaries we should all have. Also provisioning, it's all very fascinating. Nicole Cliff tweeted, Meeting Alanis Morissette was so beautiful and wonderful and we got deep. Nicole wrote the self-exclusive digital cover story about Alanis and joins us now. Hello. Hello, I'm so happy to be here. We are so happy to be talking to you about this. I am a lifelong Alanis stan, and I gotta ask you, what was it like to get this assignment? So, as mentioned in the piece, I did scream, scream really loudly. <laughs> um, Sally Tamarkin, who is my editor at Self, had sort of just cold emailed me and said, can I give you a call? And I assumed I was in trouble, even though there was no way I could be in trouble. That's just my natural. <laughs> And uh, I called her and she said, you know, we're interested in having you profile a celebrity. And I said, great, I'll do it. I don't care who it is, it can be the sixth leg guy. <laughs> um, then she said, it would be Alanis Morissette. And I fully screamed uh, and said, yes, of course, immediately. Um, and it, it, I thought of nothing else for the remaining six weeks meeting Alanis. Yeah, to me, that, that is the only response that um, one should appropriately have. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. So a lot of your piece really focused on, uh, on her experiences with pregnancy, childbirth, and postpartum depression. What did she have to say on those subjects? So Alanis is uh, currently pregnant with her third child at the age of now 45. She was 44 when we did our interview. And uh, for her first two births, she'd had really, really serious problems with postpartum depression. Uh, the first time she waited a year and four months to tell anybody about it, which is way too long. Um, and during that time, she was doing what so many women who struggle with postpartum illnesses do, which is lie to the people around her about how she's doing. You know, you go, you fill out these little postpartum checklists about, you know, do you feel despair? How many times have you cried today? Do you feel pleasure in your daily activity? No, lied about them. And then at the year and four months mark, she called her, her doctor and said, I'm feeling this way. Uh, I just continue to muscle through. Will it get better? And her doctor said, no, the exact opposite of that. Honey, you need to commit right now. Um, she did. And she got the help that she needed. Um, and despite having gone through this with her first birth, with her second birth, she grew up again four months this time, which is a huge improvement. Um, and uh, she has a really good plan in place for when this baby comes in November, uh, which is that she has seven people who have promised not to trust what comes out of her mouth and simply watch her behaviors, um, how she conducts herself, uh, really just like checking in, checking in, checking in. But even if she says she's fine, they're gonna be patient that in fact she's not. Hmm. Um, was there anything that came out in the interview that surprised you? Let's see. Yes, I'd had so uh, much curiosity about her husband because I didn't know much about Solai. 
Um, I knew that he was a musician. I knew they had met at a meditation retreat, but I didn't know anything about to them as a couple. And so it was really fascinating for me just to see, I'm always fascinated by other people's marriages and partnerships work, um, particularly in 2019. And they have, or are, you know, attempting to achieve as military in a relationship as human possible. And a lot of time working on it. So uh, hearing from Alanis about what you mentioned in the intro about the concept of religion, that, you know, Alanis is obviously the one bringing home the big paychecks. And Eli had found just a variety of ways to be someone who provides for his family in a thousand different ways. Whether that's, you know, as mentioned, running out to get her stuff she needs in the middle of the night, whether that's watching the kids so she can go do a show, um, whether that's just being the person who can take on the big, messy, noisy tasks that she isn't the convert. So, Nicole, do you feel changed, as changed as you hoped, <laughs> uh, upon meeting Miss Alanis Morissette? I do, I do a little bit. <laughs> um, I have to say, I honestly do. No, there was such extraordinary, like, if I can arrive at 45 with just the degree of, of grace that Alanis has managed, I'll be very happy. Uh, I'm not just talking about the fact that she looks awesome. I mean, I mean, yeah. you, know, you saw the pictures that went with the profile. She's just stunning with And in a very, like, Earth Mother sort of sense. But just... Uh, and something that didn't make it ultimately in the profile was I asked her, you know, do you think right now at 45, do you think this is the happiest you've been? And we talked about how happiness and contentment are sort of something we chase, they're not stable things that we can arrive at. And so it was really, 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 really uh, interesting uh, to think instead that she said she felt that she was the most herself. She and I thought a good goal to shoot for. Yes, it uh, I mean, I still love Alanis' music. I, I gotta say, I can't wait for this Broadway show that's coming up with all of her music. Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my very great pleasure and thrilled to have been here. And let's take it to the timeline. What's your favorite Alanis Morissette song? Tweet us using the hashtag AM2. Ironic. Mm. What's yours? <laughs> um, I would say All I Really Want. All I Really Want? Yeah, how about yours? That's great. You Ought to Know. Oh, I yeah. I need a good anger ballad. That, like, rage, that rawness. Yes. Ugh, That's I how I it. smile so much. I yell in the car. <laughs> Up next, Alex is sitting down with the writer and actor behind What the Constitution Means to Me, Heidi Schreck. Stay tuned. Such a good show. Mm. Good show. Eight times a week, Heidi Schreck performs a show called What the Constitution Means to Me. She tackles the question if the document that defines American history and politics is still relevant today. I saw it and I'm excited to have Pulitzer Prize finalist and Tony nominee Heidi Schreck on the couch. Thank you so much for being Thank here. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here. So I want to give our viewers a little sense of the show sure. uh, to start things off. So take a look at this clip. Amendment 9 says... The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Do you know what this means? It means just because a certain right is not listed in the Constitution, it doesn't mean you don't have that right. The fact 
is, there was no way for the framers to put down every single right we have. I mean, the right to brush your teeth. Yes, you've got it. But how long do we want this document to be? <laughs> so, uh, as you can see there, you play both your 15-year-old self. Yes, that is my 15-year-old yes, self, yes. to be clear. Yeah, yeah and yourself <laughs> now. And uh, at 15, you actually traveled around the country um, doing these debates and the, you used the prize money um, to fund your college education. I did. Yeah, but yeah. why did you want to uh, revisit that experience in your life now? I think it was such a formative uh, time for me. I mean, I was a teenage girl. Uh, I devoted a lot of my teenage girlhood to studying American history and then doing this contest. And it really, I mean, it was a powerful time for me. It's when I, I think I found my voice. Also, uh, I realized I was good at something. Um, so I wanted to go back and make a play about that time, just what it was like to be a teenage girl in the 1980s. <laughs> and, uh, and then somehow in revisiting that, I realized that that I really actually had this whole other play that was about the Constitution and my life and the lives of the women in my family and um, the history of my of the women in my family. So Yeah, and it's also, it's extremely timely. Um, since 2017, you've performed the show 219 times. Oh I didn't know that. Yeah, 219 times on Broadway. How do you keep it so relevant and timely with all of the, of the headlines? I mean, it's fascinating because the show itself doesn't change much. And I performed the show in first in 2015 when Obama was president. Um, but but what's happening in the world uh, keeps changing and what ha what's happening in our country. And so what people bring to the show is different and also the, the feelings I bring to the show are different. So I think because the show is about 230 years of American history that um, it's always relevant and it's just that, that what's happening in the country today sort of uh, shines a different light on different parts of the play on any given night. So I think I think the play is intensely relevant, but that's only because the things that are happening right now, you know, we're planted the seeds of what is going on right now were planted 230 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. What's happening now is because of the way our country was founded and born and the decisions that were made a long time ago. I mean, speaking of uh, you know how it's really, the mood in the room is driven by what's happening yes. now. Um, when I saw the show, it was right around the time that a number of states had introduced these really restrictive abortion bans yes. that they were passing, and I just saw the conversation about access to reproductive health care just consume my timeline, my social media, yeah. everything. And you you talk about your own personal stories. Um, you talk about your great-grandmother being sold, right? You share your own abortion story. Yeah. How do you navigate all of the emotions every single night? Uh... That part is tricky, and it was particularly tricky during those weeks when those abortion laws were being passed because the audience was so charged, uh, the, their their emotions were high, and so were mine. I was very angry that week, and um, my stage, my great stage manager, Arabella Powell, had to remind me that the 15-year-old wasn't angry yet. So. I have the benefit of getting to enter the show as a 15-year-old with all the hope and optimism I had at that age. And so I kind of, that that kind of keeps the play grounded. Um, but it is difficult when I when I transform into 47-year-old me, it's difficult not to let um, rage and grief sort of take over. Yeah, yeah. And you break down the fourth wall uh, with the audience. Yes. Um, I have to wonder, do you ever have nights where you're like, I could do without the audience participation this time. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> Have you ever had anybody like really get into it with you? A little bit. I've had, a, not very often, but I've had a few men shout out things they disagree with me about. They've, they've shouted out their, um, 
their opinions and uh, and we, you know, the part of the joke and reality of the show is that I'm psychotically polite, which I, I still am. I was raised to be that way, and it, that's a part of myself I kind of deconstruct in the play, but I have a very polite comeback to those men that usually shuts them up. Hmm. I feel like I need to like yeah, maybe should. take some maybe take some lessons or I'll something. I'll give you all the phrases. Please, please, please do. <laughs> well, you end the show um, by asking the audience if uh, they think we should scrap the Constitution, start fresh, yes. um, or if we should keep uh, the document. Um, have you kept track of, you know, how we can, yeah, if, yes. what the vote tally is? We do. We have a tally backstage. We write on the wall. Um, so... People have voted to abolish the Constitution approximately 15% of the time. It's usually younger people um, uh, and people from other countries. <laughs> We're like, we don't care about your Constitution. You should get rid of it. Um, yeah, but about 15% of the time. And then, you know, we, I switch sides with the debaters. At first, I always argued to abolish, and the young teenage debater always argued to keep. Now we switch sides, and they do win more often than I do on all fronts. Yeah, so. they, they were yeah, pretty amazing. I mean, yeah. they're yeah. incredible. Yeah. Well, I have to ask you, um, you know, last night was the first Democratic yes. debate. Um, you know, everybody's talking about 2020. Um, whose hands would you like to see the Constitution in? Uh, that's a terrific question. First of all, I missed the first part of the debate because I was performing, but I, I mean, understandable. the second part. <laughs> um, you know, I, I came away like many um, Democrats last night feeling very excited about the possibility of a Warren Castro ticket. I, uh, right now, those those two are my favorite. I felt like they spoke the most eloquently. I felt like they had the best um, policy ideas and plans. And I, they they just both feel like people who have a deep sense of integrity. People I would trust. Um, the country with. So that's where I am right now, but I'm trying to keep an open mind as we go through this um, process. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. And I was so moved by this show, and so I really hope that our viewers check out What the Constitution Means to Me. It's a thought-provoking Broadway experience. Up next, Zach is giving us some Dixie Chicks appreciation for Throwback Thursday. Amazing. <laughs> Yesterday, Billboard tweeted, Dixie Chicks confirmed new album is coming, and the girls on Twitter lost it, including me. Joining me now to discuss the glory that is the Dixie Chicks is Miles Tanzer, digital editor at the Wall Street Journal magazine. Hi, Miles. Hi, how are you? Good. It's so nice to meet you in real life. I know. Twitter we know each other digitally. Miles is a very talented journalist, and I would only get the best for you all today for the Dixie Chicks, and Miles <laughs> is the best. Thank you. So before we jump into the details of what's to come, when did you first meet the Dixie Chicks in your own life? As a little boy watching VH1 seeing Wide Open Spaces music video, I feel like it's coded at queer, really hit my heart. I've been a fan ever since. Truly. I think the Dixie Chicks are the queer country stars for us. Absolutely. Or there was an openly gay country singer who was the Dixie Chicks. Yeah. So what do we know about the album so far that is coming? A release date, details, anything you can share? Sure. They have been in the studio for a while now. This is going to be their first uh, album since 2006, mm -hmm. which won Album of the Year, huge hit for them, turnaround moment. Um, but what we know is not that much besides who they've been working with. Mm -hmm. um, they've been closely working with Jack Antonoff, mm -hmm. um, who's produced for Taylor Swift, Lord, St. Vincent, all the pop gals. Mm -hmm. um, they've also been in the studio with St. Vincent herself, wow. uh, Teddy Geiger, 
Um, Joshua Tranter and Julia Michaels. So really pop, really mega. They're co- they're coming. This is I'm amazing. So excited. Amazing. So you know the Dixie Chicks did have a fall from grace within country music. Yeah. Where do they stand today with those uh, folks? It's pretty unclear, and I think that's going to be kind of part of this interesting moment for them. Um, you saw that they came out a few years ago at the CMAs with Beyonce. Hugely controversial performance. They hadn't been back on a country stage in almost a decade, and to show up with Beyonce, who herself has, you know, controversial kind of moment. Yes, you know. it was during the police moment yeah, for her. It was absolutely so, amazing. Which was just the iconic carry for me. Yeah. Beyonce showed up and said, girls, I'm so powerful. Yeah. It doesn't matter. And the Dixie Chicks were like, we were also powerful because we're next to Beyonce. She said, I'm here. Y'all are mad about it. I'm bringing <laughs> all my girls with me. And it's going to be a key Texas forever. I loved it. So we have a tweet uh, I want to share with you from Joe. Uh, Joe writes, the bittersweet nostalgia of youth killing your husband, speaking out against the atrocities of the Iraq war. There really is a Dixie Chick song for all of my moods. So they faced a lot of backlash when they criticized George W. Bush. Do you think there's a coincidence that they're coming back now and when we are kind of on the brink of war? <laughs> I think, um, judging, if you follow Natalie Maines, the lead singer of the Dixie Check, she's always kind of been there responding vocally to everything that's going on in the world, as well as just in her own life. She went through a divorce a couple years ago. Um, I think this album is going to be speaking, again, like speaking to that tweet. They're going to have a song for everything. I'm so ready for it. I'm so ready for it. So here's a tweet from Beck Law. I'd like to introduce a law that you aren't allowed to get into Casey Musgraves without paying your respects to the Dixie Chicks first. (laughs) (laughs) So would you say that the country music scene is changing and becoming more open? I think... Casey Musgraves would say the same thing. I so, want to say yeah. I really was tweeting at her today to be like, please say something about this girl. I know she loves it. She's, she's incredible. Um, but yeah, country music has had a really hard time changing. I think to outsiders of the genre, when we see Casey Musgraves win album of the year, it's like, oh, this is a completely different thing. But from 2014 to 2018, only 16% of country hits were including women out of 500 hits. Wow. So that's, you know, change is slow. Yeah, it changes slow, and Dixie Chicks are probably going to tear that down as they come out. Fingers <laughs> crossed. So you mentioned Jack Antonoff, and you mentioned St. Vincent. Are there any other not non-confirmed people that people are speculating to be on the album? Um, we'll see. I mean, like... From a production standpoint, it seems like it's leaning very pop. And, you know, with Teddy Geiger being so close to Shawn Mendes, possibly maybe we can get a collaboration oh. there. That would be exciting for some people. Wow, <laughs> Shawn Mendes and Dixie Chicks. Yeah, I don't know. Forget that would be like teeny sugary pop sensation that I would secretly listen to, but never tell anybody. Exactly. Spotify private mode. Oh, that, <laughs> that is the trick. You've heard it first from Wall Street Journal's editor. Private mode will save your life. Well, Miles, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so glad you were equally as excited to talk about this topic with me. So it's been lovely to meet you in real life. Um, so but let's take another timeline. Who would you like to see featured on the Dixie Chicks new album? Let us know using the hashtag am to dm But don't go away. Up next, Alex is sitting down with the stars of The Rook. This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with actors Olivia Munn, Emma Greenwell, and Jolie Richardson, the stars of the new spy thriller, The Rook. <laughs> Thank you all for joining me. Hi, thanks Pleasure. for having Bringing in with a little dance with that it's intro like music I saw. It was lovely yeah. music. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I want to get into this show. Um, it, of course, is a supernatural spy thriller, and Olivia, your character goes to London after there's been this big, mysterious incident. So did you have to research a lot of, like, spy or secret agent material to get into this character? I was actually really fortunate because I'm not that much 
Um, earlier than filming this, I had come off a show where I played a CIA operative, so I had spent a lot of time talking with ex-CIA members and two women um, and this one man. And so I did a lot of intense research. The interesting thing I thought was so fascinating um, is that most of the best snipers in the CIA are women. This is what they told me because they're just so precise with their shooting. So you know, a lot of times it's depicted to be the men, but it was the, the women. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, your character, Miffany, uh, like wakes up, has no idea who she is, which was like such utter a moment of panic and would be my biggest nightmare. Um, how do you get in uh, the headspace to play uh, such like a fearful, panicked moment like that? Um, I. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> no, um, well, I saw, yeah, I was. I don't know how to answer that. With that, I I had short-term memory loss. I had an accident where I actually it wasn't that I didn't know who I was, but I'd lost like two weeks of my life effectively. So I sort of drew on that a bit, and then also just you know just really thinking about what it would feel like to wake up in a body and not really recognise it or your surroundings and have no idea. You know, so I only lost my personal memory. I still have all the practical sort of things and just sort of play pretend, I guess. And you could just draw on that. <laughs> yeah, and just sort of, you know, moment. and also it was pretty scary. Wake, you know, these bodies were pretty disgusting that were there. So, and also I didn't know which ones were real and which ones were fake. Um, and it, yeah, so it was just sort of play I, in that moment. I did, you know, I didn't know about her, the actual short-term memory loss that she had. And I thought it was just, it was so interesting because I've been wanting to ask her as I, you know, we'd be seeing screenings of the, the show and her performance in it is so, it's just so nuanced and it's, it's so, I mean, you can see that somebody is so, That's you know, just popular. I mean, you're just so, you're just, you have, you know, you have this combination of just this fear and vulnerability and this like inner strength and it was, and it, it made so much sense that she was pulling off something that really happened. I mean, it's, it was, a, it's, I mean, it's such a fascinating thing just to watch. Don't you think it's just somebody waking up and just not knowing who they are and, and also being very, you know, just beaten up and physically, which is an interesting. Part. But also, my my feelings was we've been talking about it. Anyone who's ever had a blackout <laughs> is that terrible fear the next morning of oh my oh god, my god, what happened? Right. What did I say? <laughs> what did I do? On that? Oh and, and most people can draw on that, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. my if it was me after blackout, my performance would have been just me going through my cell phone, going, who did I text? Yeah, like the call. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! What have I done? Oh my god! Do your friends confiscate your phone if you've had like one too many? I don't think they're good enough friends now. Oh. <laughs> I think that I'll be friends. Well, speaking of the personal connection to this material, um, Julie, you're from London, and as I understand, this project was the first time you were able to film um, in the city. Really? Did that bring back no, any memories? Not quite. Not quite not the first quite. time. Okay. I mean, the first time I got to do a television series at home. Got it. Means a great length of time at home. Well, 101 Dalmatians we shot in mm -hmm. London. Mm -hmm. um, a few other projects, but never sort of really highlight every single English London famous landmark. So that was very exciting. And then to work there continuously um, with such a great group of people and such a scary, interesting <laughs> story. It was, and then, you know, I, I play the head of the Secret Services and she plays the king and she's, she's a very powerful woman but keeps everything private. So it, what I love about, say, us three, because we're the in three here, <laughs> in our show, is, is everyone's just got a very singular agenda and singular characteristics, mm. which always makes for interesting chemistry. Mm. One of the things you mentioned are powerful women on this show, and this show not only has you, uh, three women leads, it has two female showrunners, and does having an all-woman-led and kind of anchored show change the dynamic on set at all? 
I think not particularly. <laughs> yes. What, um, what no, but I just think what, what I said the other day, which is yeah. that um, it, it doesn't really change the dynamic. You know, people are talented. You know, they're yeah. very talented showrunners, very talented writers, amazing female directors who are incredibly good at their job. The only difference is perhaps that conversations are wrapped up a lot quicker. There's a sort of understanding amongst them and a communication that we have, a, and so shorthand when you're yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's probably the difference. And you know, just support. It, yeah. it felt very exciting to be part of a show that really was led by women. Um, I, it felt part of the new wave of a 50-50 discussion, which was really healthy. But everyone's professional, so it's not sort of gender related, really. You know, your director's a director, and you respect them, so. You know, they, yeah, you see our, what I mean? And I, our director, Kari Skoglin, she, um, you know, is a woman, which, you know, leads into what you're talking about, but she's also fantastic. The night before I started filming, she had won the BAFTA for Handmaid's Tale. So it's not just that we were, that the creators were looking for women, they were looking for just the, the best top people. Of course, yeah. Yeah. for the jobs. Yeah. We have a fabulous male lead, Adrian Lesnar, <laughs> who sadly couldn't be with us oh. today. Um, I love it. But, uh, but it is very exciting. Mm -hmm. To, for us as women to get to play these roles. Yeah, well, one thing I think we're getting at is the kind of cultural moment that we're in. And Olivia, you've been outspoken in particular about your own experiences and the Me Too movement. And do you feel like sets are changing or are people still turning you know, a blind eye to uh, you know, people abusing their power? Well, I, mean, I think a lot of people have spoken out um, since. Um, and they've spoken out about things happening on sets, you know, um, in this, in the post Me Too um, era. So it, it's still happening and, and there are going to be people that are hoping that they can just push past it and people can, you know, just forget, you know, um, you know, that we you know we have stuff with, you know, the Afflecks, both of them. Um, they just keep going and hoping that, you know, nobody's going to, you know, find out. We've got, you know, Tarantino who admitted to abusive behaviors on set and also admitted to knowing what uh, Harvey Weinstein was doing. We get, you know, if we get enough people to join on board and do his movies, we all just kind of keep moving forward. And, you know, for me, the, um, I think the, the frustrating thing that has, has always been there and as you see it happening still is that, you know, when most people mess up, um, we have to go to the back of the line and earn our way back up. But then there are these certain men who, when they mess up, they kind of go, oh, sorry, my bad, and then just resume their place in line. And the the thing is that, not that they're not incredibly talented in their own right, but um, when you are given the opportunity to have any kind of power and you abuse that power, I believe that you immediately lose all positioning and that you don't get to have that power anymore. And you need to make room for the other people who can come in and have an opportunity to be great directors or writers or producers or actors. And that, you know, the abusers need to go to the back of the line. And, you know, redemption is possible, but you got to earn it just like everybody else. I think it's fantastic that we're part of a movement where we all know proper boundaries of behavior and that people stick to them. Um, what, what I think is interesting as part of the discussion is that everyone talks about strong women and that's a really important conversation. But equally important is, is, is strong men, equally important is vulnerable women and, and humility. You know, as women we have to, um, and as men, we have to have humility. And do you know what I mean? I think sometimes all the 
stickers can send out wrong messages because the people who aren't feeling empowered are like, well, there's something wrong with me. Why am I not a strong person? It's like, you're okay. You're exactly as you are. We're all part of this wonderful big mix and we're all equal. To that point about men too, like something that I think is important for people to understand is that this is not a woman's issue. It's an abuse of power issue. Um, we know that because Anthony Rapp has spoken out, Terry Crews has spoken out, so it's not, it just so happens that people in positions of power, you know, are usually heterosexual men, so that's why more women um, are victims, but um, it's not about just women, it's, it, it's, it's all of us together. Mm-hmm. And we like need men to be having these conversations with us and you know, having their own conversations with each other. For me, that's the, the biggest thing I've noticed is now it's a conversation that um, I feel comfortable having. If someone makes me uncomfortable or mm-hmm. if I see bad behavior, I'm, I feel empowered by these very brave women who have come forward and this discussion that is happening to say something and, to, and the backlash. What I hope is that if you feel uncomfortable, feel like someone's doing something wrong, you can say to them, hey, that's not okay. And it it's, doesn't become an argument. It's accepted and say, you know, I'm sorry. And let's, let's rectify that. Well, I could easily keep on talking about all of this with you all day long. So thank you so much for joining me and taking the time. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having us. Thank you, yeah. Alex. And the Rook premieres on Sunday, June 30th on Stars. Stay tuned for more AM to DM. to digest today uh, with the debates and all of this breaking news Dixie about SCOTUS and Dixie Chicks. God, SCOTUS, yeah. it's breaking news, important news, but Dixie Chicks too. But I'm also Dixie so, Chicks, yeah. I'm feeling so light after getting out of I'm so glad. So thank happy you, for you. Thank you. But before we get to your tweets, we wanted to give you an update on the recent Supreme Court ruling on the census. Supreme Court blocks, the tweet from AP says, Supreme Court blocks citizenship question on 2020 census for now. The court says the administration explanation for it was insufficient. Mm. This is very shocking. Mm-hmm. A lot of people feared this was going to come into effect. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. I think a lot of people were worried that it would somehow skew the results of the census because people would not respond to it if there was a, if there was this question. Exactly. And they were worried it was over 6 million people would respond. And that's a big number. Yeah. So more on that. It's just breaking news and we were too learning a lot in real time. You know we will be covering this as we get more info about it. So we asked what the funniest or most cringeworthy moment from last night's debate was. And Alan says, this gift from last night keeps making me laugh this morning. (laughs) I mean, for real. Can you just, like, look at Warren and Booker's faces? They're just like, dude, are you serious? You're so over. (laughs) Like, you got all this way and you're going to do this. Like, this is what you're doing, bro. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We wanted to know what your favorite Atlanta's Morissette song is. Andrew says, I think it's Lens. Um, I don't know, you know, I have to say, even though I know everything from the Alanis Morissette oeuvre, right, that's the word? The oeuvre. Um, I, I don't know that I know that song off the top of my head. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. Do you want to explain to people what oeuvre is? Just uh, collection like, But yes, all of, all of the things that she's, she's, she's done. Precisely. Yes, yes. Thank you for indulging me with that one. I love that you pulled out some French. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, and I said, none of that. None Andrew, of that. This is not, oh Andrew. my gosh. This is not the debate stage. All right. Well, thank you to our guests, Paul McLeod, Miles Tanzler, Nicole Cliff, Michael James Scott, Heidi Shrek, Emma Greenwell, Jolie Richardson, and Olivia Munn. And you don't want to miss our final game to DM tomorrow in celebration of World Pride. We have some very special guests that will be joining us. We've got Laverne Cox, Stephanie Beatrice, Shangela, Wilson Cruz is more. I mean, look at yes. these superstars. Ooh, it's going to yes. be a great show that you won't want to miss starting at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day.